Yes, what is up, my self-improver? It is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development one tip at a time. First, I applaud you for showing up. Your commitment to learning and challenging yourself is something worth celebrating. And man, is it worth it today. It's time for a self-improvement sit-down. Instead of the usual two-minute episodes I have on the podcast, which I highly suggest you check out after this if you haven't already, in our self-improvement sit-downs, I have really powerful conversations with industry leaders at a layer we couldn't possibly access in only two minutes. And there's no point in stalling here. I am so excited about this episode. This discussion is so good, and I can't wait for you to hear it. It's self-improvement sit-down number 30 with Jessica Carson. And we are live. Today's guest is Jessica Carson. Jessica has a long history of bouncing around in her career and finding new ways to use her skill set. She did research at the National Institutes of Health, got involved in a professional networking startup, got into venture capital, and now works for the American Psychological Association as the Director of Innovation. Within that path, Jess had the chance to meet many different entrepreneurs from very different backgrounds, but found that a lot of these entrepreneurs had a lot in common when it came to their mental health and self-care habits. To shed light on this concept, Jessica wrote the book Wired This Way to help entrepreneurs better understand how they work and give them tools to reframe that creative energy in a powerful way. Jessica, you are a beast. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Cool. Before getting too much into the details of the psyche of the entrepreneur, which is definitely your sweet spot, uh, I just, I'd love to touch on what you're currently working on at the APA. And to me, and this is kind of me just trying to process, but the terms innovation and psychology don't seem to match in my mind. And I'd love to learn more about some of maybe the latest and newest trends in psychology, because I'm sure much of it is related to the book, but specifically when it comes to the field of mental and emotional health, like what are some new understandings that we should be looking out for as humans that are interacting every single day? Oh, what a cool question. So, so psychology is fascinating because it is both a science as well as really an art form and a body of philosophical work. And, and psychology, you know, really until the present day has looked like two people sitting in a room together with one person on a couch and one person in a chair talking back and forth. And while that methodology has its its incredible benefits of having that in-person ability to to receive mental health care treatment, it's also not particularly scalable, particularly efficient, particularly accessible. And so what's very interesting that's happened over the past few years, but has really spiked in the wake of COVID-19 is this move towards the delivery of mental health care services through technology in an effort to make it more scalable, more efficient, more accessible. 
And so in the past where you would have someone who um, wouldn't be able to seek uh, the or, or receive the health care treatment um, that they needed because they couldn't afford it, or they lived in a part of the country that didn't have a kind of mental health care specialist they needed, um, or were elderly and couldn't leave their home. Now we have things like telehealth and um, mental health care apps and wearables and virtual reality and um, artificial intelligence and software that can um, lay over the telehealth care process to glean insights, uh, uh, you know, even really small, interesting insights like um, the cadence in your voice, your intonation, um, your, your, your tone, your speech rate, all of these things are actually fairly accurate predictors of mental health conditions. And so part of my work as director of innovation at the APA is to bridge this gap between psychologists and technologists. Um, because what happens oftentimes is that psychologists don't always know the tools and resources that are available for them. And technologists don't always know exactly what psychologists need and want and are ready to use and, and also what they will trust. So I help to um, facilitate those conversations um, and provide guidance um, for people looking to learn more about how they can use technology to inform their mental health care. That That's so interesting. And that almost like, again, like when I position the question, like it seems backwards to me because we talk so much about how technology is ruining our psychology and like it's creating all of this conditioning, right? And it's like, but yeah. now there there is always that positive application and, you know, the media can feature one thing and then kind of the scientists and experts can maybe speak into another. So that it's so interesting that the problem is also the solution. And that's, we're going to get into that with entrepreneurs as well. But like, it, there's this almost natural kind of like binary or kind of like hot or cold relationship between some of these concepts. And like, you can always view it from one lens, but then there's this kind of byproduct or counteraction that also exists on the opposite side of the spectrum. So that, that's super interesting that within innovation for psychology, there's even this natural kind of spectrum that we're talking about. There's this light and dark, absolutely. And I love the way you framed that because on one hand, um, technology can be a, a truly benevolent gift to humanity. It can also be the cause for our destruction, right? I mean, it's like, um, let's take for example, if uh, Alexa, became all of our therapists. Uh, so on <laughs> one hand, that offers the extraordinary ability to put a therapist inside of everyone's homes. But what else is that also causing um, from the perspective of privacy or security or, um, you know, distrust or just um, there being technological barriers created by who can afford to have Alexa in their home, so on and so forth. So um, yes, for every... Uh, action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For every light, there is a bit of dark. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that we're on this conversation of technology because I, I think that is kind of a hotbed topic right now within psychology and specifically the negative side of it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Cool. And then, and then kind of, all right, so let's get back into then your, your sweet spot here. So it's, it's more of the kind of the self-acceptance, the self-care and the mindfulness practices that individuals can use and how that can influence their psychology. So I, I guess I, I'm a huge advocate for that. I've learned to practice some of these things myself, of course, you know, not as well as I'd like to at times. Um, and, and kind of as an entrepreneur myself, I can definitely relate to a lot of the work that you're doing and pioneering, but just kind of, you know, at large when it comes to kind of self-acceptance and self-care and mindfulness practices and how that relates back to our psychology, kind of 
I guess, what are some of the physiological benefits? What are some of the perceived benefits? And, you know, how, how is that such a, a powerful way for us to move forward and to be able to, you know, activate our potential to one extent, but also to activate our, our happiness, right? So how, how does that all relate? Yeah, so I'd love to take a few steps back and to explore why self-care is so important for for us as creators to begin with. Because, I mean, self-care is important for every living being. But for creators in particular, what I started to discover when I uh, was working primarily in venture capital, my job was to meet with thousands of creators, was that I was very, very well aware of their extraordinary bright qualities. I was aware that uh, creators are powerful in terms of qualities like ambition and optimism and risk tolerance um, and, and all of these different qualities that are mission critical for entrepreneurial success. But on the other hand, I became aware that each and every single one of these light qualities comes hand in hand with an equal and opposite dark quality. And that it seemed, uh, you know, for every creator who is very achievement oriented, they were also prone to exhaustion and hyper competitiveness. For every creator who is passionate, they were just as obsessive. For every creator who was conscientious, they were just as perfectionistic. Uh, for every creator who was optimistic, they were just as kind of delusional and reckless. And so um, I became aware of the powerful light and the powerful dark and also the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual distress that often comes in the wake of this complexity. So I became aware of the mental health issues. I became aware of the emotional distress, the stress-related illness, the existential angst, um, and, and very quickly became aware that creators are just these extraordinarily complex beings. They're high and low, they're masculine and feminine, they're logical uh, and, and, and creative, they're open-minded and critically minded, and all of these poles of experience that seem as though they shouldn't exist within the same being. And yet, when harnessed properly, this complexity is what fuels their work as creators. It's what underlies their creativity, their productivity, and their inspiration. And so all of this is a long way of saying that the reason that self-care and self-understanding practices are so essential is because the primary distinction between creators who are complex and they let that burn them versus creators who are complex and they use that complexity to their advantage, seems to be their degree of self-understanding. It's their ability to understand their own wiring, to really harness their polarities in a productive way to unify the opposites of their personality so that they may be the most efficient, effective, healthy, authentic creators they possibly can be. And so... Also, to be clear, when I say self-care, it's funny because self-care has been conceptualized nowadays, especially with, you know, Instagram and TikTok culture as like, you know, $12 matcha lattes and bath bombs. But the truth is that's not really what self-care is. That may be a component of superficial self-care. But what I mean when I say self-care is the way that Socrates and uh, the Stoics and Aristotle referred to self-care. They referred to self-care as true 
care for the self, taking pains with oneself, employing what the philosopher Michael Foucault referred to as technologies of the self, which are practices that can impart a degree of wisdom and purity upon the mind, body, or spirit of the individual. So these are practices like meditation, practices like um dream work or journaling or uh, dialogue or therapy or time in nature, um, these are true self-care activities. So when we say care for the self, it's not just care for our physical body. It is care for the essence, the soul, the spirit that is us so that we may continue excavating more and more of ourselves so that we can carry through more of who we are into our work. Hmm. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of what you're talking about, just kind of general self-awareness and the practice of acquiring self-awareness, which I'm a huge advocate for. I think that is the root to a lot of our own insecurities and also, like you're saying, the root of our greatest strength. But it's it's also interesting how that kind of transitions because like I'm trying to think through how like the physical act of self-care, like it's like, like what is the mechanism behind that? that allows you to be introspective and reflect? Is it literally just doing the reps and putting yourself in the shoes and kind of going through the work and, and spending the time there? Or is it just the acknowledgement that allows someone to be able to enter that space and accept it and kind of begin doing the work? You know, kind of, I guess my question is, is it more just kind of like a thought exercise or is there physiology behind some of this stuff that backs up the value of it? Oh, well, certainly. I mean, there there is a physical element to um, every self-care practice. The way that um, maybe we can conceptualize self-care practices here is anything that holds a mirror up to the self for the purposes of getting a deeper understanding of the self. Now, to be clear, that can be very cognitive intellectual practices like meditation or like, you know, things like journaling. But um, let's take a practice like yoga. So a practice like yoga may be a physical care practice, but when done properly, the practice of yoga brings us into our bodies. It brings us into this like suit that we're walking around in and helps us move some stuck stuff around and, and, and move into different places in our body that we didn't even realize needed some expansion. And so in mm. that sense, the practice of yoga is a mirror that brings us deeper into our body, just as the practice of meditation is a mirror that brings us deeper into our own mind, just as dream work is a mirror that brings us deeper into our unconscious minds. So certainly there are, you know, and, and I gave the example of yoga, um, for some people that will be running, for some people that will be, you know, swimming. Um, but really the cool thing about self-care is that at least in the way that I choose to conceptualize it, basically anything can be a mirror back to the self. So you can look at a piece of art or listen to a piece of music and contemplate what that brings up for you. You can use really any creative medium, whether it's nature or it's um, watercoloring or it's, you know, what, what have you to learn more about yourself. Everything in our universe is an invitation asking us to learn more about ourselves and to uncover and recover different aspects of ourselves. I 
I think I'm starting to understand. Thank you for walking me through that. So I, I think I'm getting there. So it's uh, there, there's part of it is like a facilitation, right? Because I mean, like part of our just natural, like an el- a natural element of our psyche is that it protects itself from harm. You know, that's just built into us. That's why, you know, as evolutionary humans, we're built to protect ourselves because then we can survive. And some of those protections end up creating these barriers or walls or difficult things to penetrate, right? And maybe some of these self-care exercises, it facilitates your ability to penetrate that barrier and to be able to enter into that space so that you can grow and fix it rather than just kind of ignore it and avoid it. You know, so I'm, I'm maybe... Uh, maybe that's kind of getting there at least a little warmer and I'm going to have to think a little bit more about it. You're getting hot here. Yes. So what psychologists as well as some spiritualists would call that what you're, you're referring to exactly is shadow work or exploring Mm -hmm. our darkness. And to be clear, darkness is not our badness. It is not our awfulness. It is nothing to be, you know, to shame ourselves for. It is, and it's frankly nothing to cure ourselves of. It's merely things to remember in ourselves and to become aware of. And so, um, you know, uh, an example and what I find so fascinating about the creative and entrepreneurial journey is that it's truly a hero's journey on which we come across different experiences, encounters, trials, tribulations, temptations that cause us to, whether we like it or not, face our darkness, right? So Mm. most of us start our entrepreneurial and creative journeys well-intentioned. We want to live a life of meaning. We want to create a thriving career for ourselves. And then over the course of our journeys, and this uh, has played out in many extreme and interesting ways in my own life, we end up tripping over or sometimes face planting into our darkness because this journey demands that of us. So for example, uh, the entrepreneurial ecosystem is very kind of famous for its love of 30 under 30 lists. And, oh, you know, have you done the TED Talk? Have you done this? Have you won this award? Have you been on that mm-hmm. stage? Have you been interviewed on that podcast? And while these are very beautiful ways for us to receive um, well-deserved validation for our efforts, they can also be very superficial ways to fluff our egos to be seduced by our own power to be celebrated uh, for for really gratuitous and empty and hollow reasons. We can find ourselves craving this validation as our core means to feel validated um, when when really that's not that's a very shallow and hollow and empty source of nourishment for us. And so you know one common uh, dark uh, dark aspect of self or shadow aspect of self that creator have to navigate is what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to become visible for their work? What does it mean to receive validation or praise for their work? And how much are they going to develop that healthy ego versus that unhealthy ego as a result? So that is one of the many, many examples of um, really the, the journey of the creator being a mirror for the individual um, to uncover both their light and their darkness, right? Because of course, the opposite of that darkness is is the light of empowerment and of confidence and of of um, authentic power and pride. Um, so it's it's recognizing that our light and our dark go hand in hand, um, and it's about our willingness to see, to acknowledge, to heal, and to integrate both sides. 
I love what you mentioned there. You are so speaking my language. Like I'm dedicating myself to changing exactly what you're talking about. Like this whole idea of like the social validation feedback loop and the who's who and the what's what, you know, like all of that, like you said it so perfectly, it is shallow and it is empty, but it is quick. Like it is the immediate gratification that we're wired to to search for and to seek out, you know? So it's like, we're we're fooled and we're triggered by this stuff. And we, you know, we, we aspire for it and we long for it because like, it just is so immediately gratifying, but there is so much more to it and so much more to discover once you get on the other end of that and you start investing in things and going levels deeper that there's, there's like a, a whole kind of like hidden fulfillment built into that. And, and even the way that I describe it, you're kind of referencing it, but the way that I describe it is the flex, right? Like the people that are just like flexing on like, yeah, I did this, know that, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't know. I feel like there is a, a huge movement in the works and I'm working on it, but there's a huge movement in the works to be able to introduce the idea of delaying that gratification so that you're experiencing something higher and lighter rather than immediate and kind of superficial. And that's, that's something I'm super inspired about. And I'm, I'm so glad we can relate on that. We have a ton more to talk about with that, but we'll save it for another time. Um, but, but we're doing everything basically right now, but talking about your book, like we're talking in a roundabout way of everything in, in your book. My book, because these are all topics that are broached, um, in, in the book. Um, and in fact, um, so, uh, well, I mean, I guess this is a segue because the, what we just <laughs> talked about with the eco piece, um, is an entire chapter on my book called um, The Empowered Creator, which is about the light and the dark of the entrepreneurial ego. Um, and so basically the way I have laid out the book is exploring 10 creator archetypes that exist within anyone who has a creative or entrepreneurial spirit. So whether you're a corporate innovator or you're a creative or you're an entrepreneur or you're an aspiring founder, um, these are archetypes that you embody to greater or lesser degrees. And the idea behind the book is that by recognizing certain aspects of yourself, certain aspects of your light and your dark within each of these archetypes, you're able to develop a little bit more self-awareness around um, some of the places that might be causing you to trip up on a mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual sense. And so another example, uh, you know, and if you like the example of the, the uh, empowered creator on ego, um, I suspect you might also uh, be intrigued by the, the charming creator, which is mm. the creator that is based on the archetype uh, dimension of charisma, because this is something that I embody, you certainly embody, you have this charming, charismatic, high energy, magnetizing thing about you. And frankly, many, many, many people who self-select into entrepreneurial and creative work do. And they self-select into this kind of work because this work requires us to be salespeople. It requires us to sell ourselves, to market ourselves, to uh, come across like everything is fine when it's not, to uh, come across like we know things, we have the answers when we don't, to come across like we have a successful company when really we're on the verge of bankruptcy. I mean, these are sort of all mission critical qualities of the entrepreneurial spirit. But then in the same breath, the darkness of this becomes really 
hiding who we are, suppressing our emotions, aligning ourselves with whoever someone else wants us to be. Uh, you know, and I can say, speaking personally, and I share a lot of uh, stories in the book where I uh, fell on my own face. You know, a few years ago when I was working in venture capital, I uh, was a proud little young thing. And I was a young woman working in an all male office. And I wanted nothing more than to come across as smart and successful and capable. And I wanted to be one of the boys. Now, to be clear, the men I was working with were lovely, lovely men. This was something that I believed that I needed to do in order to succeed. And so basically, I, my charming creator got all revved up and I turned myself into the person that I thought I needed to be to succeed as a venture capitalist. So I wore black turtlenecks. I drank the brown booze. I smoked the cigars <laughs> I developed a dirty mouth. I uh, leaned into my aggressive qualities, my feisty qualities. And I ended up really combusting as a result. I mean, I completely waded away from that part of myself uh, and that very authentic part of myself that is deeply feminine and very graceful and very soft and very sensitive. And I actually ended up getting sick in the process of pretending to be someone that I wasn't. But I'll tell you what, I was never more externally successful and more externally rewarded than in those moments when I was pretending to be something I wasn't. Mm. Um, and so it can be very, it can feel very um, strange to, on one hand, feel like I am so far away from that core essence that is me. And at the same time, this seems to be the version of myself that other people like and find impressive and the, the version of myself that people want to go on dates on and people want to put on panels and people want to, you know, uh, be friends with and people want to invite to drinks. Um, and so it's, it's getting very clear about who, who you are, how you want to show up, what you want to create, and really carving out that compass, that North Star for yourself. Because my goodness, this ecosystem can make it very, very easy to move too much into that place of just aligning with who we think we need to be. Yeah, you, you touched on something really important, and it deserves a little more, um, I think it deserves more conversation, is the idea between extrinsic and intrinsic, right? Like, they're like, and that's kind of when we're talking about entrepreneurs and kind of the, the psyche of entrepreneurs, like within the light and the dark, like those are on the extremes, right? That's kind of the argument is that you're, you're hot or cold, like you are all the way across. There's no kind of middle ground is just kind of a very emotional and just kind of like they, they're very susceptible to the extremes. And, and that's kind of when you're talking about this, you know, smoking the cigars in the boys club doing that <laughs> thing and how like there wasn't a halfway for Jess, right? It was all the way I have to go this way. And that's just kind of a natural response by creators and entrepreneurs to fit yeah. in and to kind of like really lean into that identity. But like what you're referencing is like there, there's that that super negative side of it where it violates your own personal integrity potentially, right? And And like by going into that extreme and kind of embracing what is the dark side of that personality trait? Now you're out of alignment with who you want to be and what you want to do. And, you yeah. know, kind of as you shared, and thank you for opening up about, you know, some of the issues you had with your health and everything, like that's a, that's a real byproduct of some of this stuff. So mm -hmm. I guess like moving forward, you know, if someone can relate with that and kind of understand like maybe I'm behaving different than who I want to be, maybe I'm acting like I'm someone I'm not kind of, and we already talked about self-care, maybe that's the first step. But when it comes to bridging that gap and having people 
kind of shift back to the intrinsic side of it? Kind of what, what is the first step or some of the, the best things someone can do to acknowledge that dark, recognize they're in it, and then start moving themselves again toward the light? I love this question. So what you're um, referring to is what I call in the book integration practices or integration techniques. So when studying the light and the dark, we don't talk about curing, we don't talk about healing, we talk about integrating, we talk about unifying the opposites, um, merging all that we are so that we can truly become whole. And so each of the, depending on which creator you resonate with, or you know, and you might resonate with all of them, there will be different integration practices uh, that might be most healing for you. Now, I'm going to frustrate you in the way that I answer your question, because <laughs> what I give in the book for each of the archetypes is a primary sort of integration suggestion. And then I give a few examples of what that might look like. So in the example of the charming creator, to integrate, it's essential to hold sacred the practice of authenticity. Now, hmm. that is frustrating for many people because that is very general and it is not a three-step cure and it is not a, uh, but, but, but this is the whole thing with this kind of uh, work around light and dark and integration of the shadow is that I cannot prescribe to anybody their integration pathway. The only thing that I can expect myself to do as a teacher is to make them aware of the parts of themselves that need integration. And I can provide them with some frameworks to help them self-prescribe what they need. So, you know, uh, for example, for myself to, to he help heal and integrate or, or, or bring together my charming creator, it was very, very, very essential for me to basically drop a lot of people out of my life who were validating me for reasons that, um, frankly, were not very healthy. Um, I had to refind friends and colleagues who uh, really reaffirmed um, my truest aspects back to me. I needed to, um, and again, for me personally, really needed to get in touch with what it meant for me to be uh, an empowered feminine uh, leader and teacher and creator. But this is what I mean when I say I can provide frameworks, but you as the, as the, as the hero or heroine on this journey need to color in the own details of your integration prescription. Mm. Um, because uh, me saying I needed to get in touch with my feminine is probably not going to resonate for you, Brian. Um, so this Maybe. is, it's, it's a, but perhaps, right? But it's really a choose your own adventure. But what this book is meant to do is it's meant to provide um, the general uh, uh, pathway um, within which the student or, or the individual walking the path uh, can really fill in the details. That's amazing. Oh, I love that explanation. And no, you, you don't frustrate me because <laughs> I know I, I, because I love that explanation of like, there's no one size fits all to this. Like everyone is so unique that you need to figure out how it fits you, you know? So, I mean, and I think like authenticity and I'm curious to know where vulnerability comes into one of the integration strategies. I mean, we can maybe, I don't know if we have time to touch on that one because I want to focus on one last archetype, which I just find uh, intriguing, which is sensitivity. Um, how there is this element of sensitivity within entrepreneurs. And, and again, like how 
like sensitivity has that really high, high and that really low, low, and like, it can be a great skill and it can also be a weakness. So I, I'd love to kind of, kind of quickly touch on sensitivity. Cause I don't think it's a topic many people speak on. I think it's more perceived as a weakness. I'd love to see how it can be kind of spun into a strength. And then also maybe that, that integration strategy specific to sensitivity. I think that'd be a, a great example of kind of what each archetype has to offer. Oh my gosh, Brian, I'm just getting like teary with excitement that you're asking that question because I think it's such an important question, especially to be asked by um, more, uh, you know, and choosing my words carefully, masculine oriented or uh, archetypally masculine creators. And when I say masculine, I don't necessarily mean a a gender. Uh, I mean, uh, looking archetypally at masculine and feminine qualities, uh, which we all embody to different degrees. But I think particularly among masculine oriented creators, there's this resistance towards sensitivity. But here's the truth about it. Okay. So individuals who are self-selecting into creative and entrepreneurial work are very, very often doing so, not despite the fact that they have a capacity for sensitivity for intuition, for self-awareness, for receptivity, for perceptivity, for empathy, but because they have the propensity to feel these things and to be these things. Mm. And so what I do in the book is the chapter on the sensitive creator is linked to the dimension of intuition. So uh, and it's very fascinating to look at some of the research studies now looking at intuition because researchers are finding that they can actually measure intuition through physiological measures in the body. And basically, they have found that entrepreneurs are more intuitive, meaning their physiology, their bodies are predicting uh, a future event prior to their knowledge before non-entrepreneurs can. Wow. So what this requires, though, is it requires a certain permeability of the nervous system. It requires an individual to have a nervous system that is like gossamer, like lace, that's like a sieve for the world around, that's noticing every change and picking up on every detail and um, uh, connecting the dots and seeing what's invisible to others. Now, the upside of this sensitivity is this intuition, this knowing, this feeling, the ability to know things without being able to explain how you know them, to pick up on others' emotions and energy without really under, you know, having, having a way to articulate mm. how someone's feeling. These are, these are indications of being an empath or being an intuitive. But research has also found that the individuals who have the highest IQs are those with these permeable receptive nervous systems. The upside of this being they can create brilliant works of uh, uh, whether it's companies or it's art or it's literature or it's mathematics, what have you. The downside of this is that these individuals with high IQs are also more susceptible to both physiological and psychological illness. The reason for this being their nervous system is so responsive that they're basically their nervous system is run raw from being in a state of noticing all the time. And I am the epitome of the sensitive creator and have had my nervous system basically frazzled and fried many different times from my ability to notice everything. 
And they call this the hyperbrain hyperbody theory of integration, where basically individuals with high IQs have overexcitable hypervigilant nervous systems. Again, they're being extraordinary light, but then also great distress that can come with this perceptive nervous system. And so when it comes to being a sensitive creator, what is needed to integrate this is grounding. And what I mean when I talk about grounding is practices and perspectives that really anchor, steady, and calm the nervous system. So the sensitive creator is very prone to sort of that, um, they're, they're very much in their heads, in their feeling, in their thinking. It's They have more of an airy energy about them and they very often need warm foods. They need warm beverages. They need grounding environments. They are very, they need uh, uh, less coffee, less alcohol. They need a lot of sleep. They do really well around animals. They do really well around scents and environments that are uh, more earthy, that are um, you know, uh, woody or spicy or um, actually things like meat uh, can be very helpful for the sensitive creator to help ground them down. And there are actually a lot of books that talk about um, all of all of these things um, for for the empath and for the sensitive creator. Uh, and for me, I have really had to learn how to uh, ground down my sensitive creator. So these are a few of the many examples in the book of of how to integrate your darkness and your light. This is just absolutely fascinating. Like that is absolutely fascinating. That's just so brilliant. Uh, typically I, I get to read the books of the people I'm interviewing before this. I, I didn't because of shipping issues, but I cannot tell you how excited I am to read this book because we only touched on two of the 10 archetypes and I'm like, whoa, right? Like I'm like, whoa. So I am, I am so excited to dive into to all of that. Um, wow. No, thank you so much for, for the lesson, for everything that you're offering. Um, and I, I want to give you one last opportunity, um, you know, just kind of in one or two minutes, uh, something I like to do is kind of leave the audience with a takeaway, something, you know, from the conversation or otherwise that is kind of a, a really important point for everyone to understand general or narrow. Um, I, I'd love to kind of think of like kind of what's the highlight of this conversation and, you know, what's that kind of point that we want to remember? Yes. Yes. And it is that, in a nutshell, with a bow on top, is that every part of yourself that you deem to be most ugly, most shameful, most inconvenient, most dark, is an inverted reflection of your potentiality. It is an inverted reflection of your light. And so when we get really curious about exploring our darkness, we simultaneously tap in to the rich source of our potential as creators. And so through doing this work, this isn't only about eliminating the parts of ourselves that are inconvenient. It's about discovering the fullness of, of who we might become. And so lest you ever think you're broken or bad, I would just remind you that you are wired this way. Wow, I cannot wait to dive in deeper into her book. Jessica touched on some really important things in that conversation that deserve reiteration. Primarily, what I want to focus on is the judgment we place on the way things are and only seeing one side of it at a time. When it comes to people who identify as creators and self-select into entrepreneurial roles, it's a very emotional and extreme personality type. But instead of focusing on just the good or just the bad, 
We need to think about them both together to fully address the creator and all of their potential. Jessica explains this by using the relationship between shadow work and other mindfulness exercises to bring awareness to this darkness and how it's a potential for light. We dove deeper into three of the 10 archetypes in Jessica's book, the empowered creator, the charming creator, and the sensitive creator, and how we can be intentional about integration strategies to position that trait in the best way possible. Jessica's book is called Wired This Way, and it's available on Amazon. You can also learn more about Jess at www.jessicacarson.co. And if you liked this episode and haven't yet left a review, I'd really appreciate if you do. And as always, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at self.improvement.daily or via email, selfimprovementdailytips at gmail.com. Keep shining, friends. Thank you so much for listening. I am super grateful for you. I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.